Talkers. Welcome to No Prize from God, Episode 17. No Prize from God features conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Peterson Toscano, playwright, actor, activist, and Bible scholar. A Christian believer, Peterson spent 17 years and $30,000 on three continents trying to change and suppress his same-sex orientation and gender differences before coming out and denouncing conversion therapy in 1999. His lectures, comedy, and plays explore serious subjects like LGBTQ issues, sexism, racism, privilege, gender, and climate change. His performance lecture, Transfigurations, Transgressing Gender in the Bible, has been seen at academic conferences, seminaries, universities, churches, and drag bars. He's funny, insightful, super intelligent, and passionate with a dense knowledge of scripture. If you're enjoying No Prize from God, please open up the Apple Podcast app and leave a five-star rating and a nice little review. The more of those we get, the more people will discover this podcast and the conversations we've been having. So here it is, my conversation with Peterson Toscano. This is No Prize from God. website describes you as a quirky queer Quaker performance artist and scholar and before we dive into and, and unpack that whole phrase I just want to give you props on the alliteration because I'm a huge fan of alliteration yeah titles are really important probably more important than the actual shows I produce <laughs> quirky queer Quaker is just it's just fun to say yeah, and then you can say quirky queer Quaker concerned with climate change, too. There's lots you can do with it. I love it. I love it. So yeah, so talk to me about that. First of all, um, and this may sound like the dumbest of questions, but I have a feeling I'm not alone. And, uh, you know, if, 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 if we're being authentic to ourselves and confessing that I don't really know, um, what is a Quaker? Well, a Quaker is um, it's there's a, a religion called the uh, Religious Society of Friends or the Quakers, and they started a long time ago, um, and, and like in the 1600s, you had the Quakers, and um, it's it's basically a Christian tradition that has developed and grown, um, but in a way, it's like the anti-church in that we don't traditionally have pastors and we don't have sermons or public prayers or music. It's like a lot of things we don't have. What we do have is we sit in silence. And if you go to a Quaker meeting house, um, you'll often see all these concentric circles of chairs and people just sit and listen. Uh, and it's a very strange tradition. It's an ancient tradition and it comes from the Christian tradition. But what is interesting is since there ha wasn't a pastor 
putting forth all the thoughts and the ideas, people in the congregation got to develop their own. And as a result, Quakers were often in the forefront of social movements, the anti-slavery movement, uh, women's liberation, queer liberation, anti-war, because they didn't have someone up front filtering all of that away. Mm. And, and yeah, I would imagine then with a sort of decentralized leadership or orthodoxy, the entire faith would be that much more... Uh you know, that, that much more able to sort of maneuver and navigate and, and go forward quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And it does require, I think, everyone just stepping up, right? Because you're just sitting there in silence. You have to make your own magic happen. It's it's not like it's this program that's going to happen. And then if you feel like you have something important to say in the middle of that silence, then you're encouraged to stand up and share that message, which is wonderful and terrifying. <laughs> Um, it, it sounds a little bit to me uh, like the 12-step recovery process of, you know, people sitting in a circle and, and sharing and, and some people just kind of sitting there in, in silence and listening and absorbing to what's being said. I could see that, yeah. So tell me about your kind of earliest faith experiences. What, um, you know, where were your parents coming from? What was your upbringing like? Uh, what was kind of your first introductions to some of these concepts of life's biggest questions. Mm, yes, I think the right word for my faith background is eclectic in that um, it started out pretty straightforward in a Roman Catholic working class Italian American family in upstate New York. And so we went to church and all, but it wasn't anything too severe. Uh, but I felt this like rumbling and stirrings from an early age about God things. I remember as a kid, we passed the Kingdom Hall for the Jehovah Witnesses. And I understood all of those words separately, but together I was like, what is that? And so I asked my mom, she goes, oh, those are Jehovah Witnesses. I was like, Jehovah, isn't that like God? Like they saw God? And as a kid, I don't know, that that, that concept of people having this encounter with God really moved me. So much so that by the time I was around 15, 16, 17, I really began to press in and look at other faith experiences, because I was dissatisfied with the Catholic Church. I met some women at a fundamentalist Bible church, and they just say share the very simple message about Jesus. And at age 17, I became a born-again, evangelical, conservative, Republican Christian. And I say it that way because um, it was a social and political conversion as much as it was a spiritual one. Mm -hmm. But at the heart of all of it, there were two things really motivating me. One, I definitely wanted to know about God and become more of a spiritual person, but I also was gay and lived in a society that made it incredibly clear that it was wrong to be gay and I would be far more valuable to everybody if I were straight. So fueling part of this quest was a, an odyssey to try to de-gay myself through the power of Jesus Christ. And I think that that is an experience that a lot of people can relate to, <laughs> um, particularly coming out of that mainline evangelical atmosphere. Um, and I think that there, you know, a lot of people with a sincere and earnest desire to know God, to understand, you know, these ideas about Jesus Christ and all these sort of tenets of the Christian faith and the of course, the wonderful and fantastic and transformative things that can be found in there, coupled with a self-loathing or an identity anxiety and a hope that in delving headfirst into these other things that you can sort of mask and, and run away from <laughs> certain truths that you're that you're wrestling with. Um, and I, I think what's sad is how many people you know, both known and unknown that live in that, uh, you know, for years and years and decades, you know, that, uh, that are, that are probably active in evangelical churches as we speak, you know? Well, and even people who are not, I mean, you're, you're involved in the world of entertainment and Hollywood. I mean, you hear these stories of people who were in the closet all of their lives, they finally come out in their 70s or the 80s, uh, their 80s, and then they finally come out. And, and it wasn't because of religion, typically. Um, it was because 
you know, they would have been punished or they felt they would have been punished in their career and in society if they were gay. And that's the other thing is it's not just about all the anti-gay stuff. It's all the, the perks, the privileges and the rewards of being straight. And I think that, you know, that's very seductive. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to that point, (laughs) I was just working on uh, something related to the movie Clueless, one of my favorite movies of all time in 1995, Amy Heckerling classic. And uh, I was reading uh, some excerpts from this great oral history that came out about the film. And the actor who played Christian in the film, uh, you know, which was a character that was recognized by Glad at the time. And, uh, you know, it was such a great representation because it was this teen comedy and the satire and here's this boy that the main character was crushing on who turned out to be gay and yet the totality of his character wasn't just that he was the gay guy (laughs) you know and and yet um in reading this oral history uh, as much as the actor who played christian doesn't regret taking the role and would take it again you know here it is 2017 and he's the gay guy from clueless you know what mm, I mean? Like he talks about right. how uh, the, the casting director in the oral history talks about how that was the hardest part to cast because uh, so many actors in 1995 in particular, young male actors, were reluctant to audition for that role uh, for fear yeah. of being typecast. Um, and, uh, you know, and this actor, my my takeaway from what he was saying was basically that that did in fact happen and uh you know he's proud of the role and doesn't regret it uh despite that fact but that that was a uh i I suppose a a fear with um some legitimacy behind it oh definitely yeah and and then in the church of course it it just gets uh i think magnified because to this day and age still if you're in certain types of evangelical bible churches if you're straight and you're the pastor and you just support LGBTQ rights, you can lose your job. Absolutely. I remember, uh, it seems like a lifetime ago, uh, with how quickly, you know, I feel like our culture when it comes to social values often takes, you know, one step forward and two steps back, which can certainly be said about today's climate. But uh, with that being said, you know, 10 years ago, 2007, uh, my buddy Jay Baker, uh, who was, you know, the tattooed preacher, the son of Jim and Tammy Faye, and, and, you know, people that were looking for sort of a a quote-unquote edgy type of ministry were attracted to that church because it was, you know, he had he had church in a bar and he was very open about grace and forgiveness and uh, all of our flaws and this and that. And yet... Uh, the moment that he came out as gay affirming 10 years ago, all of the funding that was coming into his church evaporated. The entire staff was eventually let go. Uh, all of his speaking appearances were canceled. Uh, major festivals like the Cornerstone Music Festival disinvited him. Different mega church pastors who were big at the time, some of whom have since come out as gay affirming. Um, refused to meet with him, refused to talk to him, refused to be associated with him. And the only speaking gigs that were left in terms of him earning a living as a theologian and pastor uh, were with very small grassroots, you know, past the collection plate around um, LGBTQ churches. Yeah. Uh, and, and, then it, and then it got to a point where, you know, I know, he, I know him very, very well. We're close friends and he has, you know, no regrets about it. But here we are 10 years later and it's still sort of the issue that defines him as a straight pastor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I I really struggle with this because you know I don't want anyone losing their job, right? Over over stuff, but on the same hand, I I have I, I meet with some pastors and some of these national leaders who, you know, publicly have this sort of don't ask, don't tell policy around how they feel around LGBTQ stuff, yes. or they have this sort of vague kind of roundabout way of saying it. But really, behind closed doors, they're like, I've got no problem with it. And I understand that some people are strategically trying to put themselves in a certain place. But I also have to ask the question, how long can you be dishonest and and receive privileges from being so unclear about who you are, because there is a certain privilege and open doors that come from not being affirming. 
And as a Christian and a person of faith, there's an integrity issue that needs to be sorted out. And I'm not saying everyone has to come right out and support LGBTQ people. I know it's complicated, but they really need to have some discernment of, of is this really the path for me to go? And when do I need to step up? And I remember toting Capolo years ago, I, I had begged him to, you know, to come out in support of LGBTQ people. And, um, and he was not, you know, ready to do it, not willing to do it. And I said, well, do it before it's too late and you're not relevant anymore. You know, do it while people are still listening to you. Yeah. I, I think there's a uh, strong parallel to be drawn between what we're talking about in the evangelical uh, past pastoral community uh, and, you know, President Obama and Hillary Clinton and some of the prominent figures in the Democratic Party and on the uh, progressive and liberal end of the political spectrum who, quote unquote, evolved on marriage equality, <laughs> you know, and it's like, I think many of us had the sense that we knew where, uh, where they were coming from long before that they took those positions publicly uh, and that there was a very, that there was a strategic and unfortunately disingenuous tone to some of those sound bites that you go back and look at where, you know, Obama talks about how he's, He's into, you know, traditional marriage between a man and a woman and, you know, civil unions maybe are okay. But, and you, and you know, and you're listening to that stuff and it's like, I know that's not really what you think. Right. You know, and, you know, and, and, and obviously there's this idea, particularly if you're doing activism of some sort, there's, you know, strategic steps. And I, I don't think strategy is necessarily a, a bad thing to think strategically. Uh, what, what's funny is I'm experiencing the same kind of conversations these days with Republican lawmakers around climate change where mm. publicly they're saying all sorts of anti-climate change things or saying nothing. But then behind closed doors, uh, they and their staffs make it really clear that they're, they are actually concerned about climate change and that they feel that something needs to be done. They're just afraid to be the one who says it and then potentially have it roll back on them. Yeah, I, I would also draw a parallel to the animal liberation movement, which I've been involved in for most of my life uh, to varying degrees. And yeah, you often hear this phrase, we're not looking for bigger cages. We're looking for empty cages, you know, uh -huh. and there, and there are people in the, uh, the animal activism community that are, you know, that work to, for this incremental change to improve conditions on factory farms and, uh, slaughterhouses and things like that. And then you have, uh, you know, uh, this larger, more vocal contingent of that movement. That's like, no, we want to close those places. Like, we're not working to get more veggie burgers available at McDonald's. Like we want McDonald's gone, you know? And, uh, I, and that's an argument that I've always seen both sides of, if I'm being honest, you know, I, I, I understand that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Those two, uh, sort of dueling points of view, as much as I'm kind of passionately pulled in one direction, um, you know, it's easy for us to say, I guess. And, and when we're not in those positions of power and privilege to, to, to think of ourselves as, we would fall on our swords uh, every available opportunity for complete and total justice, um, you know, without having walked a mile in the shoes of some of these people. It's it's all very interesting to contemplate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I'm, uh, you know, and, and I don't want to dwell on this because there's a lot of things that you do and talk about that I'm interested in and I want to get into. But I'd be remiss if we didn't, visit for a moment uh your experience with conversion therapy and i i would love to say that it's something that doesn't need to be talked about anymore at all but considering we have a vice president who uh, is possibly an indictment or impeachment away from being our president who believes in conversion therapy who was the governor of my home state indiana where i grew up unfortunately it's as relevant as ever yeah, it is. And um, far less concerned than I was uh, 10 years ago, even if Mike Pence becomes a president, because things have shifted so dramatically. And I think in part it was because of the really courageous, uh, hard work that a handful of ex-gay survivors did. I mean, there were other people, activists and all. But um, I think we saw an amazing example of the power of personal witness. Over 10 years ago, well, 2003, I started talking out about against the ex-gay movement. And at that time, it was just a big joke. I mean, people just laughed about it. Like, what a stupid thing. Why would you do such a silly thing? And nobody was taking it seriously. 
Uh, and we had a problem with it. The handful of us who began to strategically think about messaging, we thought we need to change this message and really highlight that this is about harm. So we coined the phrase ex-gay survivor to indicate that we weren't just these ex-ex-gays or you know, people who tried to go straight, but we survived a genuine ordeal that caused psychological, emotional, spiritual damage. And that, you know, what's thrilling is today, as I read about reparative therapy and how it's talked about, that is on the radar. People talk mm. about how dangerous it is. And that's why you have laws in states and cities now that ban the practice for youth um, because it's recognized as something that is dangerous and harmful and not just something that doesn't work. So while I am concerned, I'm much more concerned about what happens outside of the U.S. Because what happened with reparative therapy and ex-gay ministries, it's very much like the failed tobacco industry. Um, they, After years of people hammering away at, at big tobacco, they had to acknowledge, yeah, our product is bad and it's harmful. And even now, right now, there are ads going out on TV and, and in print where they have to, as part of their legal set settlement, say how harmful it was and how they intentionally tried to deceive the public and get them addicted. So what they did, though, after their market share was lost in the U.S., they then began to export their product to Africa, to Asia, to Eastern Europe. Mm. And that's exactly what has happened with conversion therapy. Uh, once they began to lose the market share of desperate souls trying to be right with God in the eyes of the evangelical church, they then went to Eastern Europe. They went to Uganda. A group of pastors went about to almost 10 years ago to talk about conversion therapy for men who were arrested for being gay. And they did such a, they were so compelling about how awful the gay lifestyle was that some of the lawmakers in Uganda thought, wait, these people don't need therapy. They need to be killed. They need the death penalty if what you are saying is true. And um, now you have in Singapore, South Africa, parts of Eastern Europe, you have uh, in Latin America, the same, some of the same people in many ways uh, who have exported this stuff. And that's, that's where it is. So I think what needs to be done is we need to translate some of the materials we have into these other languages and, uh, and help train uh, activists in these other countries on how to take on this threat. Wow. Yeah. And that really puts it into perspective, uh, that larger context of the severity and consequences with this type of thinking and this this programming going out there. You know, one of the things that I've always found extremely frustrating about reparative therapy, conversion therapy, uh, you know, similar to some of these camps, right, where parents would, uh, you know, where these guys come to your house in the middle of the night and kidnap your teenager and make them, uh, you know, go hiking in the mountains to to teach them that they shouldn't listen to their heavy metal records or, or whatever um, <laughs> is the fact that so many of the people involved uh, in these organizations who are doing this sort of work are completely unqualified for any kind of <laughs> psychiatric Absolutely. care. You, you know I mean? It's like how many people are running CrossFit gyms that are like, yeah, yeah. take, take this truck tire and throw it over <laughs> here and do this or whatever that, that have no, you know, wouldn't know how to open the first aid kit if someone were injured on their property. You know, yeah, yeah, it didn't even take Psych 101. And in many cases, you know, had to turn, you know, had the title reverend in front of them, but had never gone to seminary. And yes. yeah, and so they had this authority over people, but they didn't actually have the, the skill and the training. Yeah, and that's what I, I, that's what I find the most terrifying about it. And, and the idea that there were parents and families entrusting the mental and physical health of their children into the care of these people who yeah. were, you know, charlatans, um, you know, selling yeah. themselves as, as people who could quote unquote help. Um, it's terrifying. Yeah. When I began to talking about it, it was just such a hard thing to talk about, not just because it was my experience and it was hard to relive it, but it was just so heavy that I decided I had to do comedy about it mm. because not to make light of it, but to shed light on it. So I wrote a sure. play back in 2003 called Doing Time in the Homo Nomo Halfway House, How <laughs> I Survived the Ex-Gay Movement. And it's now actually available on Amazon Prime. You can stream it there. Uh, and it's 
it's both hilarious and horrifying because it's all based on this this straight camp that I attended for two years. And it included, you know, bringing my parents involved in it. I was an adult at the time, as most people are who go through these programs, actually. Uh, but it was still horrifying. Uh, and comedy, I found, was the one way of getting to the heart of it without it crushing a person to hear about it. Uh, yeah, and I, I find that uh, that's a truism with comedy about so many things that we struggle with in life. I'm a huge, huge fan of comedy. I go, uh, I go to comedy shows two or three times a month uh, for about the past two years here in LA. And uh, yeah, I'm a huge advocate for the art form and for uh, its use as a processing device and coping mechanism for a variety of traumas and uh uh, you know, worldviews, and um, that's my favorite thing about it. I, I liken it to music in that sense. That yeah, it's it's something you can enjoy on the most uh, primal and sort of surface level of of what's being presented, and then on a, the deeper levels and layers that you can unpack and and get into what uh, someone's really getting across, or what they're struggling with, or or what or what have you. Um, so yeah, I think that's a uh, such a great way to explore something like this. You know, I'm reminded of when I when I think about you know when you say straight straight camp, you know the idea that uh, part of quote unquote curing homosexuality is to take a bunch of gay teenagers and put them in camp together. <laughs> you know I know, I know, I know. There's just so much comedy. That was the thing yeah. I had to do with comedy too. It was just so ridiculous in so many ways. Um, the double entendres, triple entendres. It was just like at one point they <laughs> they had they had banned bananas in the in the house um, because somebody had a phallic fruit fetish. Um, but but he had a fairly severe case of it that actually extended into the vegetable world. So for a time, no carrots, cucumbers, or zucchinis. Oh, but the little carrots were fine. They didn't bother him so much. <laughs> he was a, he was a size queen when it came <laughs> to vegetables. He really was apparently he was. <laughs> um, yeah, it, I think about uh, and this is you know not not to derail us on a tangent for a moment, but uh, you know I had some experience in the mid '90s, early to mid '90s. Uh, with the Baha'i faith community. And, you know, the Baha'i faith is a very progressive religion that is, you know, uh, since the 19th century, uh, when it began, promotes the oneness of humankind, uh, the equality of men and women, um, the uh, plurality of of religion, this idea of, of progressive revelation, that all the world's religions are, are true and from the same source. And, you know, all, all this stuff that's sort of ostensibly great on the surface, and yet dig into the orthodoxy of it. There's no clergy, um, but there are, there is leadership. There are governing bodies at the local, national, and international level. And, you know, despite its insistence on the equality of men and women, <laughs> since 1844, women aren't allowed to serve on its highest body. <laughs> and uh, homosexuality, well, homosexuality is a mental disease that, uh, we should have lots of sympathy for and with the help of doctors and prayer and so forth can be cured. So my experience in the early to mid nineties, uh, encountering, uh, people in that community who were gay and who were struggling with it in the same way that, uh, followers of many religious, uh, organizations and, and traditions, um, do. I, I remember and this, is what made me think about the, the, straight camp thing i remember very specifically the local spiritual assembly as it was called in indianapolis telling a a gay baha'i that i knew that it was inappropriate that he had a roommate who was a woman because in the baha'i faith men and women who aren't married can't live together <laughs> and <laughs> you see where this is going right yeah, yeah um you know yeah he ends up living with his boyfriend and that's perfectly fine, so long as, you know. Don't ask, don't tell. Don't ask, yeah. don't tell, as long as they weren't We out. don't need to know. Yeah, but it, you know, it, it, it looks wildly inappropriate for you to live with a woman. Uh, so <laughs> move out of that place and move in with your boyfriend. Uh, you know, and, and it just, it sort of, uh, it, it introduces, I think, uh, the variety of, of sort of logical fallacies and entanglements that, some of this bad theology ultimately leads to. And I think that, that, you know, that, you know, the whole thing about judging something by its fruits, I mean, 
those are just sort of embarrassing, ridiculous situations that don't address reality. Yeah. And, and to get to what you were, um, you know, raising about like the, um, the potential dangers of a Pence presidency. Um, while I think there are risks for cisgender gays and lesbians, I think we already see that the real risk are towards trans people and gender non-binary people that that's really where legally and socially the attacks are. And it's really important for cisgender gays and lesbians to stand in solidarity with with trans folks um, because uh, they're such a small population and uh, the conservatives would love to pit us against them just like they love to pit us against immigrants and um, and and Muslims. And so I think we need to be really clear minded about that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that's a great point because I, I do think that that's uh kind of the next great frontier in terms of acceptance and societal norms you know it's like <laughs> i can imagine you know somewhere in the in the appellations <laughs> some 60 year old straight white male going okay i finally come around to the idea that gay people are okay now i got it now i gotta figure this out you know and it's <laughs> like we're, we're kind of dragging the culture uh forward um like it always has to move because uh, once upon a, you know when people talk about the supreme court shouldn't come in and and rule that uh, gay couples can be married. It's like, well, the Supreme Court had to do the same thing for interracial couples, right? And people say, well, that's different. That was, you know, that well, that was wrong. And I, I love. I've actually had conversations with evangelicals who were in complete denial about the fact that the church in America uh, was, you know, had the biggest bullhorn about the sinfulness of interracial marriage. Right. Exactly. And gave moral authority to racism. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, so I want to get into, you know, you brought up the trans transgender issue um, that's uh, large in our culture right now. And, and uh, I want to talk about, and you, know, you talked about performing and, and your comedy thing. Let's talk about transfigurations. And I think uh, listeners to this podcast, if they've made it this far into this episode, um, are going to be fascinated as I am about some of your, uh, you know, scholarly type <laughs> study and understanding of scripture, of the Christian Bible, and how it relates to gender and uh, some of these these issues that are kind of at the forefront of the conversations right now. Um, so I'd, I would be interested to know, uh, I guess, as a kind of broad question, and we can get a little more granular, jumping off from there, what sort of in a general sense does the Bible say about gender and what are some of the, the mis misconceptions and misunderstandings that are out there? Well, um, you know, what's interesting about the Bible is that it doesn't say anything in particular about anything and it's up to people to go and interpret it and kind of pull meaning from it. And that means we need to be kind of humble about it because we could get it wrong. Uh, I love the way that um, in Jewish culture and rabbis, they look at a text from multiple angles. Sadly, in the Christian tradition, we often have one approved interpretation that gets handed down century after century and is upheld. And if you challenge it, then it's a problem. But I like this idea of saying, well, it could be this, it could be that. And I think one thing you can see for sure is just like our society society today, in the Bible, there are often very clear rules, even laws, about how men and women are supposed to act, how they're supposed to present, their roles, that sort of thing. So it's not that difficult to see when someone's misbehaving and they're not following those rules. And in our society today, if you're LGBT or not, um, when you do misbehave, often you're punished for it. But this is what shocked me about the Bible in regards to gender and a gender non-conforming behavior is that there are so many people in the Bible who break the rules. And it's so important that they do because they turn out to be some of the most important people in the most important stories. But because we are kind of trained to not notice this stuff, um, we look the other way and they're hidden from sight. Please give me some examples of what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm going sure. to walk right through sure. that door. Yeah, And that's that's exactly why I, I 
wrote the play and the performance lecture, Transfigurations, Transgressing Gender in the Bible. And I'm so thrilled that it's on, it's a film now. Um, and it's, you know, beautifully shot by, um, by Sam Neff, who's an amazing, uh, young filmmaker. Uh, and it's very intimate and it tells these stories in a beautiful way. And you get to hear the scholarship too. And I'm, thrilled to announce that it will be um be screened in kampala uganda next month which is oh, a wow. big deal because yeah. this is a highly extremely anti-lgbtq uh government there and uh they have to almost do it in secret to show these films but they're having their second annual film festival talk about courageous queers that is a big deal so um so people always ask, well, who, who in the Bible? And I was like, well, go to Amazon Prime and you can see it yourself, but I can tell you a few now. Um, but one of the things that's really important is when you're doing Bible scholarship, I think it's just as important how you tell a story as what story you tell. I think especially because those of us who were raised in the church and we were taught over and over and over again to look in a certain way, we can rebel against new ideas. Uh, and so how one tells these stories is really important to help people hear. So I'll give you an example. In the Bible, there are many eunuchs. And a lot of people don't even know what a eunuch is. I mean, Game of mm -hmm. Thrones kind of has helped a little bit, but not really. <laughs> <laughs> but something physically happens or doesn't happen when someone is made a eunuch. Now, often people are made eunuchs against their will, although historically there have been people who have chosen to be eunuchs. But what happens is a physical act. Someone is castrated. Their testicles are removed. Sometimes their testicles and their penis are removed. And in many cases in the ancient world, this was done to young people, to boys before puberty. And as a result, they lost the ability to produce testosterone and they never experience puberty. So they get none of the secondary sex characteristics. The, um, their voice remains high. Uh, they don't get the facial hair, the body hair that comes with testosterone, the, the muscles, the prominent brow. They look and sound different from the men and women around them. And that's important for us as modern readers because when there's a reference to a eunuch, it's not just you know an identity. It literally someone who is physically different mm. and someone who can't have children, which in the ancient world, that was like what it was all about, right? Your offspring and having family. And if you were seen as male and you didn't have offspring, well, that was weird. Yeah. I mean, people often ask me, was Jesus gay or queer? I'm like, I don't know, but it was, it was queer that he wasn't married. That was strange. Mm. Paul too. I'm not saying that they were gay, but that was strange to be a single man in that culture. Well, I got I, I got to interrupt you there because there are so many instances in the gospels where Jesus talks about the importance of the homosexuality issue and how gay marriage uh, will lead to a slippery slope where, where people will marry dogs. And, oh, wait, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Jesus never said anything about homosexuality in the Gospels. Well, that's right. But My he does mistake. talk about eunuchs. He did mention eunuchs hmm. at one point, interestingly enough. Interesting. Uh, yes. Yeah, there's this whole discussion about marriage and divorce and, you know, could you remarry and all that. And, and Jesus says something curious. He says, well, you know, some are born eunuchs. Uh, some are made eunuchs and some choose to be eunuchs for the kingdom. Whoever can accept this should accept this. And, you know, in classic Jesus fashion, you'd have to say, well, what are you talking about? <laughs> it was yeah. yet another parable. But possibly, you know, some people have said, well, maybe eunuch at that time was an umbrella term that covered a lot of identities like queer does today. Mm -hmm. So someone who is born eunuch could be, well, maybe they were born intersex and they had... Um, you know, ambiguous genitalia. And so it was unclear if they were male or female. There are several intersex conditions that that's still a reality in the world today. Um, maybe they were born uh, eunuch in that they didn't have a desire to be with uh, right. a man, with a woman. Right. So what we would think of as gay today. Um, people maybe were made eunuchs in that they were castrated. And then people choose to be eunuchs. And the Catholic Church has uh, at some point said, the Roman Catholic Church said, well, that's, they were celibate. And that's that's possible. Um, people choosing to be celibate, uh, maybe somebody choosing to castrate themselves. We don't know for sure. But the thing that is interesting is Jesus says something positive about eunuchs and that someone should be able to accept it. And then in Acts chapter eight, we actually see one of his followers. You see Philip, the apostle, actually acting this out. He's walking along. 
the spirit speaks to him and says, talk to that one. And that one was an Ethiopian eunuch, a rich person from Ethiopia, a civil servant who was literate, which was rare in the ancient world. Most people could not read and write, who was reading aloud from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And Philip is told, talk to this person. Now, Philip is probably illiterate and probably poor and goes up to this rich person on this chariot with the whole entourage and asks the obnoxious question, do you understand what you're reading? <laughs> I mean, one cheek. <laughs> and then the, the eunuch looks down, I'm, I'm assuming with certain disdain, saying, um, how can I unless someone explains it to me, please? <laughs> Girl. Uh, yeah. And so yeah. Philip hops up on the chariot and they have all these questions. And the eunuch asks this important question, who is the prophet speaking of, himself or someone else? So he's reading this passage and it's a curious passage about someone who is suffering, someone who experiences physical pain and humiliation, someone who um, doesn't have offspring. And this passage for many Christians is interpreted as a prophecy about Jesus coming and suffering and dying for our sins. But for a moment, imagine you are a eunuch. As a child, you were taken from your home, perhaps to another country. You were held down against your will. You were operated on and you experienced extreme pain. As you grew older, the boys around you changed in ways that you were not changing. And you have this life where you have this position, but you're also mocked for not being a real man. And you're reading this passage that says, like a sheep before the shearers is silent, like the lamb before the slaughter, he too opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can speak of his offspring? For his life was cut off. Hmm. The eunuch asked, who is the prophet speaking of himself or someone else? And to me at that moment, it's as if he's looking in a mirror and he sees himself in the text which is critical because if you were a eunuch, there were prohibitions. You were considered unclean according to the law. And that was in Isaiah 53. I don't know if they actually hopped over to Isaiah 56, if he had that part of the scroll. But if he, they did, there's this amazing bold promises to both foreigners and to eunuchs. It says, let not the eunuch say, I'm a dried up old tree with no future and no hope. For to those eunuchs who keep my command and honor my Sabbath, I will give you a memorial better than sons and daughters. I will write your name on the walls of my house, and you will never be cut off. You know, of the variety of things that I find uh, profound about everything you just said, um, the first of which that comes to mind, of course, is uh, just sort of the lack of knowledge and understanding of, of what's actually in Scripture about this and, and many other things. I'm also struck by the enduring power of uh, the Christian text. <laughs> and the fact that here we are talking about something that feels new in our culture and yet is impossibly ancient and was addressed uh, by, you know, in these stories and parables and myths and allegories and folklore that was collected across generations uh, from a lot of people living in the desert, uh, most of whom were illiterate. and You know what I mean? It's like, it, it's crazy right. uh, <laughs> how, how much profound uh, wisdom it is relevant to the here and now, the very it is. here and now. And when we have a culture where so many people are looking to the Bible for answers, yet are unable to see some of them that are right under their noses, um, now, I think it's important to note that a eunuch in that time, I don't think it's the same as saying that was a gay man or a trans woman, um, because those identities didn't exist in the same ways, in, at least with the term eunuch. But I think you can definitely say this is a sexual and gender minority, the most visible one of that time. So because of that, I think it can be instructive to church folk about how they respond to sexual and gender minorities. So when I talk to a conservative pastor who's struggling to understand the gay thing and even says, I wish I could be more accepting, but the Bible says, mm. I basically said, well, let's talk about the Ethiopian eunuch. What did this person look like? What did they sound like? What if someone who looked and sounded like the Ethiopian eunuch walked into your church on Sunday morning? What 
sort of experience would they have and would they go away rejoicing? Because that's really the question you're responsible to answer. Now, this brings up uh, something I would love to hear from you on. I have sort of a, two, a two-part question uh, broken in half. The first part is, how do we, you know, addressing people coming from the Christian evangelical background and perspective or people who uh, were reared in a, a Calvinist-type church, um, you know, the traditional values types, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying so in a very non-patronizing or, or condescending way because I'm, I'm very friendly with a lot of people who fit this description. Um, what can we do to bring them around to some of these ideas and understandings, especially people who, because who, I feel like a lot of people in my life even that I know have this kind of rigid framework from which they're, this lens that they're viewing all of these issues about gender and sexuality and yet also have a moral compass inside that's telling them what's what's right and wrong. And sometimes mm-hmm. they may even put that off to, oh, well, that's the whisperings of the enemy, you know, right? Huh. Oh, yeah. Um, or, yeah. That's, or that's the uh, that's the pole of the world, this evil modern world that's, uh, you know, trying to drag me uh, away from my faith. Um, how do we, and I realize you don't have the exact answer, <laughs> but in your yeah, but opinion, you- how do we, how do we, uh, You You put your finger on something, though, very, very important that lots of people overlook, that there is an emotional component to this conversation. And if we don't address the emotional component, then we don't get anywhere. So I remember being part of conservative Bible-believing churches. There was a lot of fear about new ideas. And exactly what you said, be careful, because somebody could be coming as an angel of light, deceiving the very elect of God. Mm-hmm. There are doctrines of demons out there. And that's why there's um, often been a real distrust for science and educated people, because the thought is that they will deceive you from, from the true faith. And so that, that that's a real thing. People live with that, that fear, that insecurity. The, the fear that the devil put dinosaurs here. <laughs> right. Yeah, sure. Planted those bones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and because because there is this belief that the Bible is without any error and none of it is is false. And so all of it is true. And so the problem is if one one tiny part is false or is mistaken, well, then maybe the whole thing is. And so, okay, sure, maybe I've read things wrong about the gays and maybe this passage is incorrect. Well, then what does it mean for the forgiveness of sins? What does it mean for redemption? What does it mean for eternal life? It suddenly becomes an existential crisis to accept gays because it could have this house of cards effect for some people. I think it's irrational, but it makes a lot of sense. And so... I think it's more about how we approach people than even what we say. And that is to be really thoughtful and respectful and understanding that what we're asking people to do is much bigger than what we think. We're not just asking Mm. them to be kinder to LGBTQ people or to stop being hostile towards us. We're asking them to question their faith and their relationship to the Bible. And that is essential work, and I believe it's work that when you do it, actually your life is much richer and fuller as a result of it. But it is scary because it then takes you into uncharted territory. Uh, And so my suggestion is, you know, one, tell your story and tell it honestly and with vulnerability. In my case, it's about how I tried so hard not to be gay, in part because of my relationship with God. Tell your story. Let people hear that because that is really where your authority comes from, who you are and your own story. And secondly, stop trying to deal with the clobber passages, those passages that people use to say it's wrong to be gay. Because no matter how clever and amazing your response is, chances are you will never convince somebody who believes that they do condemn LGBTQ people. So Mm. unless they're really, really desperately hungry and they want to know – don't waste your time. Instead, focus on these other stories. Insert some new information into the conversation. Talk about the Ethiopian eunuch. Talk about these other characters that I raise up in Transfigurations and have a conversation about people who are different and how they're 
essential to these stories. The Book of Esther, for instance, a lot of people know the story about Queen Esther, and uh, it's in the Hebrew Bible, the, the Old Testament. Well, there are 12 named eunuchs in that story. Wow. They are so essential to that story. The whole thing falls apart without these eunuchs. And, you know, it's just, we don't, we don't notice them. And isn't that what we do in the church too? There's some people we just don't acknowledge that they exist so that we don't have to deal with it. I can't even begin to describe what a fantastic answer that was to a question that, that felt impossible to answer. That was <laughs> incredible. Um, and I do want to get to the second half of that question, but to, but to sort of stay here for a minute. First of all, sorry, I have a bunch of thoughts running through my head right now that are spitting off inspired by what you said. Um, one of them is that uh, so for some context, you know, you're talking about those clobber verses and that there are just some folks that you will never convince no matter how artful and, and creative you get with those passages. That's precisely where the name of this podcast came from, which I don't know that, that, I've, right? that I've ever talked about on this podcast. Yeah, please, because I was curious about the name of your podcast. So uh, were you a comic book fan at all as a kid? Yeah, but like like Archie comics. Don't judge. <laughs> hey, Riverdale's awesome. It's, every Archie <laughs> fan's been redeemed by Riverdale. Um, I think that's right. So, so in Marvel comics, there's this concept of a no prize, and and this is this is where it developed. Um, there is uh, in in the comic book universe, whether it's the DC universe, the Marvel universe, there's a series of interconnected characters and stories that all sort of take place in this same universe. Uh, which is a concept now larger pop culture has uh, has been introduced to via the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe, as they call it. So what would happen back in the day in Marvel Comics, you know, in having a number of different writers and artists and editors and all these people working on all these interconnected stories, sometimes continuity errors would happen. Mm. So a reader would write in and would say, um, hey, uh, in Amazing Spider-Man number 118, uh, Aunt May says that she was um, a chef before she retired. But in the spectacular Spider-Man number 234, she says that she used to work as a waitress. Um, that's This is a continuity error, right? Well, <laughs> readers would started developing the habit of not only pointing out the continuity error, but suggesting um, explanations. So, so someone who might point out this hypothetical uh, contradiction, right, would then say, what if, you know, Aunt May actually owned a restaurant? And so yeah. in that restaurant, she was both the chef and a waitress, right. uh, you know, therefore both are true and so on. And, and, and so <laughs> these letters would get printed in the letter section and then the editors would respond, thank you. Your no prize is in the mail. And, uh, and a Marvel no prize became, you know, this reward that was actually not a reward at all uh, for, uh, uh, you know, point, both pointing out and then solving a continuity in, in their greater mythology. So uh, I was I was having this conversation with, with a friend on Twitter, and we were talking about the, the differing accounts of the death of Judas in the Bible. And he was using those apparent contradictions as a means to discredit the entire Bible, bringing us back to what you were saying about the, the House of Cards argument, right? It's, right? it's either all true or none of it's true. And I had responded with, uh, you know, some context in this name. Well, when you look at this, when you look at this, actually, these two accounts aren't in contradiction because of this and that. And he responded, dude, you're trying to get a no prize from God. <laughs> and it was I, that phrase just... I mean, it was such a, yeah. it just, you know, it, first of all, it, it touched on so many different things that have been important to me in my life. And secondly, I realized that not only was that what I was doing in that situation, it's what I've been doing my entire life um, and I'm continuing to do in certain ways. And it's a little self-deprecating, obviously, too. But but yeah, that's where the, uh, like I said, I don't think I've explained that on this podcast, but that's where the uh. name No Prize from God comes from well it's yeah that you know and what happens i think because atheists have worked so hard to debunk faith i think it also then makes people that much more defensive about their faith and wanting to not you know have question any part of it and i think it's such an unfair thing because the bible's made up of multiple books it's actually an anthology or a library it's not a book right and so people 
you know, think, well, this was wrong in this one book, so the whole thing is screwed up. And I'm like, no, you need to just take it as it is. And and then from there, you know, think critically about it. And don't worry that it's going to destroy the whole thing or you're going to try to try to destroy the whole thing. Um, but instead, see what kind of light can you get? What, what kind of understanding that you can get from it? Um, but I think always hold it with an open hand. And this is the problem with a lot of Bible interpretation from a lot of people is they insist this is what it means. And I think honestly, you have to say this is an ancient text that has been written about a lot. There's a lot of lore around it that has been built up. And we often have to say, we really don't know. And it could be this, it could be that. Um, and we should not be looking to a Bible or a book to help us be nice to our neighbors. We should be able to do that without the book telling us to be. Amen. And, and this leads us nicely into the last thing I wanted to ask you, which is the second half of that two-part question. How do we address, and you started to get into it a bit already, how do we address people then coming from the other sort of the spectrum, so to speak, from the kind of Calvinist, neo-Calvinist, uh, evangelical Christian perspective to people like most of the people in my life who are atheists, who would say, well, rather than trying to solve all these problems uh, within the context of religion, why don't we just throw religion in the garbage and, uh, you know, move forward with uh, non-religious types of philosophy and values? And, um, you know, wh why, why bother? Why, uh, why, why should we even be maneuvering around within this minutia to, to figure out ways to make sense of it all? Well, you know, in the same way, I think the answer is very similar to the other one. Like there's an emotional component to this question in that people are angry and rightfully so that religion has been used to silence and oppress people. I mean, the the anti-LGBTQ oppression that we've experienced in the USA has pretty much been organized, orchestrated and funded by Christian conservatives. They're, you know, that that is not an exaggeration. And so they have been the marked enemy of LGBTQ people. And rightfully, I think someone could ask, why on earth would you want anything to do with that institution? And then, you know, you have to have a larger discussion. Well, am I actually part of that institution just because I identify as a Christian? It's not one monolith or all kinds of Christians. But, you know, people are rightfully angry and scared that these are religious forces that have political power and have already done great harm to, to women, immigrants, uh, people of color, LGBTQ people. But then secondly, I think we need to, you know, stick with our story. Um, and for me, I, there was a time I actually thought I needed to become an atheist because I was told you can't be gay and Christian. So when I came out gay, I thought, well, I guess I just have to lop off that Jesus part of me. And it was brutal because um, I came to the understanding that I'm wired for God. I'm mm. just one of those people. And in society and in, you know, it goes way back. We always have in, in our cultures all over the world, whatever the culture, there is this funny reaching out or reaching in to the invisible uh, and to the divine. It's part of human nature. And not everyone feels that way, but some of us are wired for God. It doesn't have to be in a Christian church. Um, there are other ways that people find that expression ultimately. But for me, it's always made the most sense to be connected with with Jesus and the Gospels and that expression. And, and you know, to deny that part of me would be similar to denying the gay part of me. It is part of my makeup. And for me to be an authentic, whole, powerful, settled person in the world – I need to embrace that as well without shoving it down someone's throat, understandably, but also not being ashamed of it. Well, Peterson, this conversation couldn't have been better. Um, so oh, and thank I could, you. Uh, yeah, I'm, I, I would love to have you back on again and again <laughs> down the road because uh, I feel like there's I feel like we've as in depth and powerful as this conversation was. It also feels like we just scratched the surface. Well, I'm, I'm always happy to talk about all kinds of stuff from queer responses to climate change and climate change as a faith issue uh, to um, my newest project, which is a weird comic book about um, Jesus's placenta, a another <laughs> very overlooked character in the Bible. Um, and it sounds grotesque, yeah. maybe even blasphemous, but it's actually quite tender. And um, but I think, again, we get so stuck in a story that we need to be jarred to see it in a fresh way. I love it. 
And it's so true. And uh, and I, and so my very very last question then: Who should play the placenta of Jesus in the film? <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh dear! That you know. I, I just hope that whatever they do, that they don't do, you know, computer graphics. I want someone to actually, you know, do it, embrace it, be the <laughs> Indeed. And, 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 and so long as it's not directed by Mel Gibson this time, I think we'll be okay. Oh, gosh. Well, Peterson, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to come and hang out on No Prize from God. And uh, I will make sure everybody knows where and how to find you and your, all the great work that you're doing. And, um, have a great rest of your day, sir. Yeah, you're awesome, Ryan. Thanks for asking thoughtful questions. I really appreciate that. Oh, well, I appreciate that. And uh, and I know people like to make the joke, oh, you have a face for radio, but man, you have a voice for radio. <laughs> I could <can> just <laughs> listen you. to your voice all day. Um, so thanks. Well, I look forward to talking to you soon. All right. Have a great day. Cheers. You too. Check out petersondiscano.com to keep up with all of his work. You can find No Prize from God on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and check out our blog on Patheos, where we take deep dives into many of the subjects that come up in the podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. No Prize from God is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. And if you're a Metallica fan, check out our sister podcast, Speak and Destroy, with great guests from bands like Avenged Sevenfold, Slayer, and Pantera, all talking about the mighty Metallica. As always, you guys have been great, and I've been Ryan J. Downing.